Hey everyone, welcome back to Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, episode 6. I am D.B. Spitzer. I am your editor and producer. So check out Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans Facebook headquarters Facebook page. It may be a longer title. I'm not quite sure. I don't know if Dave or the computer named it, but I, you know, I'm not an admin on this, so don't this is between all y'all. Uh, so welcome to episode six. Episode four is still being produced, but once we find all of the tapes for that, uh, it'll be out and about. And if not, maybe we'll just release chunks of it. Uh, this episode, we've got some stuff going on. Dave's super busy. Um, but right now is this sweet spot, this window where he doesn't have too much stuff going on on the farm uh, and uh, baby goat season uh, doesn't begin for a little bit more so yeah so uh, with this spare time Dave is probably going to be spending more time uh, wandering around the Illuminati base in his spare time um, if I get down to or Orleander Oregon again uh, maybe I'll drop him off my e-scooter but I, I don't like that place. <laughs> I'll go into that later sometime. Okay, so, um, yeah, first he's going to tell us about some ridiculous invention that the Illuminati came up with, and then he's going to talk about his favorite scene from his favorite movie, uh, the iconic Star Wars scene from Star Wars A New Hope, Episode Four, and whatever other things you want to take on to that. And uh, finally, there's going to be... Uh, Something about a haunted radio that the Illuminati have been keeping a lid on for over 90 years. Or, well, 70 years and then abandoned it and shot off into space. And uh, you'll not want to miss that. Uh, but first, uh, here's some of the more uh, unusual uh, things that Dave's come across. And uh, Dave, again, thanks for sending me a manila envelope full of big, chunky cassette tapes. Uh, Thank you again for the, uh, what do you call it? The uh, proprietary drive system uh, that I have to do four workarounds so I could put it on my computer. I'm like, hey, Dave, do you need a computer? He's like, I, I don't use a computer, Daniel. I've, uh, I've, got, I've got the computer here. And I'm like, oh, fine. I, I mean, yeah, I was going to try and hook him up with GarageBand. Anyway, um, here's this episode. Dave's going to talk. I'll be back later. More me. More Dave, more me, and, you know, like that. All right, here we go. Hey, everybody, this is Dave. I'm just taking a little bit of time off uh, some farm chores, and I uh, thought maybe I'd share some, uh, some of the more interesting parts of the uh, underground Illuminati base that I live over. So uh, I'm standing outside here of a sort of a special lab. So this is uh, where the Illuminati attempted to develop some of its I think more hilarious projects, things that just didn't quite work out or for some reason they struck me as, as funny. Uh, they're pretty much all kept in this lab, so uh, let's go ahead, let's enter here. Uh, so this here, one of the first things we see uh, is a puckle gun. So this is one of the Illuminati's older projects. Uh, in fact, it uh, predates the known founding of the Illuminati by 60 years in uh, 1718, or uh, at least uh, the founding of the Bavarian Illuminati, which uh, was founded in 1776. I'm, I'm still trying to work out the sort of Illuminati history here. 
So uh, one of their members was uh, James Puckle, uh, Jimmy Puckle. And basically, this is a, you know, primitive form of a, a Gatlin gun, a, a machine gun. Uh, this was a, sort of their first attempt. Uh, they did actually release it in the public, but uh, a few Puckle guns that I think were made were never actually used in combat. Um, but it's pulling off the top of my memory. I think they sold a couple to the English, but they never actually used them in combat. It's basically a, a flintlock revolver here. You just turn it, and then you can shoot. Um, and the idea was... Oh, for 1718, it was a pretty groundbreaking idea. Uh, I think the reason there was sort of physics issues here that prevented uh, the puckle gun from going out. Uh, but one thing you've got to remember about good old Jimmy Puckle, besides the fact that, you know, he was a card-carrying member of the Illuminati, he's what we would nowadays call an Islamophobe. Um, he was very, very concerned back then about Muslims. Not that he was concerned about them, he just wanted to punish Muslims. So, this gun shoots two types of bullets. So, the, the round, because, you know, that's where the term comes from, the round, it was, you know, a musket round. It was a ball, uh, like a giant lead BB. That's what you used against Christians. But here, and uh, picking up a couple of my hand here, um, these are square bullets. And this was to be used against Muslims because he thought it hurt more. Yeah, Jimmy Puckle wasn't exactly sane in the head there. The square bullets were... Uh, Basically, you know, in his own words, they were designed to make the Turks Christian because they would be so scared of the pain caused by uh, the square bullets. Okay, uh, let's see. We walk over here uh, on a uh, oh, uh, on a workbench, and uh, there looks like a regular cell phone. But you got to remember, they they abandoned this project in 2012. Um, so you know, I. You know, smartphones were out, but not, not this level smartphone. And the Illuminati was ahead of everybody when it came to apps. They really did see, you know, that there was the wave of the future. So this was an app they were working on. It was kind of like Tinder, you know, where you, you go and you try to find a, a, a date. But this one is called Friender. What it does, you put all your information in. And then it finds a person that you would be romantically attracted to who immediately puts you in the friend zone. Uh, again, they didn't get too far out with this one, but uh, let's see what else we've got here. So this this is incredible here. It, it, it looks like, you know, uh, a vintage uh, Ford Mustang, but it is made entirely out of chocolate. Yep, you heard me right, folks. This car is made entirely out of chocolate. The windows are made out of something they call invisible chocolate, so you can see through it. I wonder, you know, I wondered, does invisible chocolate have calories? Uh, the engine is made out of dark chocolate, uh, 
you know, the body, it's kind of a brownish color, so it's made out of light chocolate. And the tires, the, the white walls, you got it made out of white chocolate. And, you know, instead of, you know, engine oil, it, it uses chocolate syrup. Um, honestly, and the car worked, it was great. Uh, but this is the second prototype. Uh, the first prototype, though, when they ran it, they uh, tested it in the winter uh, in Minnesota because they thought maybe the cold would help the strength of the chocolate. Uh, then they turned on the heater and the, the entire car melted. Uh, so uh, they were still working on this when the Illuminati left the planet Earth. So uh, we're now entering uh, the Illuminati test kitchen. And uh, this is something that was designed for uh, Illuminati member Elvis Presley. Don't act all shocked. Come on, you knew the king was a member of the Illuminati. Um, if not, you probably thought he was dead. But so this is Elvis's personal sandwich maker. So uh, yeah, just hit a button here, and it makes. Elvis's favorite sandwich, peanut butter jelly banana. No, as a, a as a PJ and B's go, that's actually a pretty nice looking sandwich. Um, so yeah, um, you know Elvis was one of the, believe it or not, was a, a top scientist for the Illuminati. You know he's the one that came up with the the theory in the the 60s that with a small caliber handgun, any TV can have a remote control. Oh, and this thing here that looks like a, a microwave, but it's not. It's a macrowave. So instead of using little tiny radiation, it uses big giant radiation so that, you know, your food's faster. Uh, you're sick and tired of waiting 30 seconds for your coffee to warm up or, you know, to cook a microwave dinner in three minutes. You don't have to worry about it with the macrowave. In fact, here, I'm going to put in an entire turkey and I am going to set the timer for two seconds. And I am opening it up, and it is ashes. Uh, I always cook the turkey for too long. Okay, uh, let's see what else we've got here. Oh, okay. So this is the Hot Pocket Pocket. It, it looks like a regular jacket. But, you know, let's say you're hungry, you want to eat a Hot Pocket, but, you know, you got to go out and do something. So this is, you can put the Hot Pocket into the pocket of the jacket, and it cooks it for you. And this was a really smart idea, but the problem is, the Hot Pocket Pocket can't tell the difference between a Hot Pocket and a human hand. And so with the test subjects, it basically, you know, uh, fried their hand in, you know, three minutes at uh, 235 degrees. So uh, they were still working on that when they, they left the planet. So, uh, you know, you've gotten your uh, your food, you got your meal here, and you want to watch TV. Well, this here is the Bruce Campbell TV. Basically, no matter what you're watching, it puts Bruce Campbell in it. And let's face it, Everything is better with Bruce Campbell. And I tell you, it definitely makes presidential news conferences much easier to bear. And then finally we've got here is 
the reverse Ouija board. So basically what this does is it allows you to contact the spirits of people who haven't been born yet. Um, yeah, it was a, they're trying to mix science and, and magic here. Uh, so let's go ahead and um, tell you what. Let's go ahead and uh, leave this uh, lab here and uh, let's go check out one of the more magical rooms in the building. The TV show that adds Bruce Campbell into whatever show you're watching. Count me in. Also, is uh, just me or is uh, anyone else all of a sudden hungry for a hot pocket now? So, from a world of fantastic and strange inventions to a world of fantastic and strange aliens, Dave is going to go into a deep dive into the Star Wars cantina scene. During his universe, he's pointed in the right direction. But the Luke Skywalker, who appears in The Return of the Jedi in Jabba's palace, he's not that naive uh, farm boy anymore. He's got a plan. He is cunning. He has power. He has allies. He has a purpose that he did not have when he left the planet in A New Hope. And the most Eisley Cantina, this is his gateway. Only a gateway to the larger galaxy, but a gateway to a new life. Now, in ways too, this scene is a gateway to a new sort of style of movie and a new event. So when Lucas's team was making this, they obviously put in a lot of detail. It took, them all, it took 10 weeks from the beginning to the end to, to get this set and scene and filmed. But they were mainly, they wanted something that people remember, and it did. But they did not go in and name everything. Panda Baba was Walrus Man. The Ithorian was called just Hammerhead as a reminder that this was made in the late 70s, the crew called the, the Tanika sisters uh, the Star Horse. None of these characters really had a backstory if it didn't move the central plot to Luke and Obi-Wan meeting up with Han and Chewie and getting on the Millennium Falcon. The names and the backstories, and in some cases, the retcons, pretty much come from one of two sources. One is the um, West End Games D6 Star Wars game, where they wanted to stat and name and, and bring to life all these characters, or at least these races, so that people could use them in their games. The other was the extended universe novels. And they go together, in most cases, very closely because uh, Timothy Zahn, who is going to sort of spearhead this extended universe in the novels, does some great stories. He's given a copy of the D6 game to flesh them out, to give them ideas, and he wholeheartedly accepts these as canon and uses these in his stories. Now, he's going to find some things in the 
D6 Star Wars supplements that don't quite fit. Like the Tanika sisters, and, and those are the, the, the girl in the blue and the girl in the green jump set with the, the, the long braids. They're supposed to be twins. One of the actresses is like four or five inches taller than the other one, and, and they, they've got different facial structures. So he retcons that and makes them agents pretending to be the Tanika sisters. But for the most part, this is pretty much, it works. It combines, it, it's maybe not seamless, but it works. And so every little character that we see for half a second gets a backstory and a short story. And these stories are still being expanded on. So Werther, who is that bartender who doesn't like droids, well, it turns out in the short story collection from a different point of view, it tells his story. And his family was killed by droids during the Clone Wars, so that's why he doesn't like or serve droids. And they also kind of retcon one of the biggest mistakes that the film makes. So in the background, we see Panda Baba, that's the, the walrus-looking guy, who, you know, Dr. Ezra, his friend, you know, says, you know, translates to Luke, says, you know, we don't like you, and then Obi-Wan cuts off his arm. Well, in the background, we see him, and he doesn't have hands, he has flippers. And then when we cut to the scene where he's harassing Luke, we see, you know, that not only does he have a blaster pistol, but he has hands. So, the Star Wars role-playing game by uh, West End Games, they decide that they're going to explain this. And what they do is say, well, this is, they gave the alien race a, a quish, and they said, well, there's three different types. And the one you see in the background, well, he's wearing the same clothes, but he's a different type of alien. And he's so a subspecies because they, they mutated from radiation and they come from this aquatic world. So that's why this one has flippers and this one has hands. Now, we call it the most Eisley Cantina, but the actual name is Callum's uh, Cantina. And the name came from, again, West End Game. And they created the owner as this Wookiee, who, a Wookiee with a dyed mustache because he's a bartender or a bar owner. In fact, I won a, a free drink at a, a pub quiz because I was the only one there that that knew that, that Callum was a, a Wookiee. And I believe that before he appears in, you know, the tales of the Mos Eisley Cantina, he actually first appeared in the West End Games Mos Eisley Supplement. But they came out close to the same time. But I think it was he was created as part of the West End Games before he was made for the, the Extended Universe books. And, of course, you can't talk about the Mos Eisley Cantina or Callum's uh, Cantina without talking about the Cantina theme song. Now, in-universe, it is called Wild About Me, and it's supposed to be over 3,500 years old. And it's a type of music called jizz. 
Now, in reality, of course, it was uh, written by John Williams, who did this amazing soundtrack for Star Wars. But he hadn't written the song yet when they were filming, or at least they didn't make it available to the cast and crew. So the song that the, the Bithians are, are swaying to, when they filmed it, they played uh, Benny Goodman's Sing, Sing, Sing so that they could get sort of a, an idea of the feel, the mood of what the music would be. And then, then of course, when it got to the studio, they overlaid it with the, the sound, the, the song we're familiar with, the song that we hear for the movie. Now, I really can't talk about the cantina scene without talking about who shot first. We all know Han shot first. Now, George Lucas claims, and okay, that that was never his idea. That that just the the angles and stuff you couldn't see it, but that Greedo was supposed to have always shot first, and that in the revisions that he just made it more clear. That takes away from me. Han Solo is this scoundrel, but he also is this survivor, and. So when I saw this at 10, 11 years old, you know, I was shocked. I was expecting the good guy to, you know, to, you know, draw when he sees the bad guy draw. I was thinking Westerns, and this is inspired by Westerns. But Han Solo is not the good guy. He becomes a good guy, but he is doing what he has to do to survive. As a child, it was not that he shot first that that so much touched me, affected me, shocked me, but the fact that he kept the gun under the table. The shooting first, you know, even then I didn't have a problem with it. Greedo had a gun, by the way, and we'll talk more about them, but at the time, Greedo didn't have a name. Greedo was called The Martian when they were filming, but Greedo comes in with a gun. He's already got the gun pulled. That justified Han to shoot him, but in my mind, <clears throat> as a child, the shocking part was that he didn't show his gun that Greedo didn't see it coming. That was the unchivalrous, that was the unheroic part to me as a child. But the more I think of it, yes, this bounty hunter came at you with a gun, you have a right to shoot them back, especially when he's trying to shake you down. But that was the part that he didn't reveal the gun. And when I saw it as a child, I saw that as unheroic. As an adult, I see it as a survivor, self, you know, survival instincts. And it's not to me that Han Solo goes from evil to good. He goes from selfish to being able to sacrifice for others. And that, I think, is the transformation of Han Solo. Now, there's a scene that is cut out that really, really sort of stresses that. Well, that's a lot to say about uh, one scene in a movie, and 
Dave only covered about half of what he wanted to talk about. Our next show should have even more esoteric uh, trivia about Mos Eisley Cantina, or as Dave calls it, uh, Callum's Cantina, I think that's what he said. Um, yeah, I, for me, the Star Wars Cantina is kind of like uh, this ubiquitous thing. It's like, honestly, one of the first things I remember. I remember, uh, like, probably one of my earliest memories is seeing uh, Star Wars which I just call Star Wars because that was the name of the movie when I saw it. Sorry, I'm that guy. Uh, Star Wars and uh, the Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again, double feature Eastgate Cinemas, Portland, Oregon, uh, 1979. Uh, probably for like the two year anniversary. I remember it was hot out and it was gross. So it could have been May. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, so that is a scene for me. It's always been there and I really kind of don't think about it as being something special or interesting just something that's parodied a lot and kind of like it's one of those things that if you're a certain age you're like yeah no there's always been Ninja Turtles or yeah no robots have always interlocked together yeah no there's always been bars full of like seedy alien creatures that kind of are like reminiscent of spy movies from yeah no 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 this is a thing and I, I think it's great that Dave's talking about it because otherwise I, I don't think I would have thought uh, too much about it other than like oh yeah that's a cool scene I liked it when I was a kid so now Dave says he's coming to share with us one of the Illuminati's darkest artifacts. Or not the darkest, but a darker of the artifacts. Uh, a radio that captures a horrible murder back in 1938. Let's learn about Joshua Eastman's radio. And uh, we're going to talk about that next time. Okay, hey everybody, uh, this is Dave. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, as you might expect, there's a lot of stuff in this underground base. We're not even sure how many levels it goes. But um, a lot of it is is like that warehouse in Indiana Jones. You know, with all these things. I'm sure the Ark of the Covenant's lying around here somewhere. And a few relics, they're so special that get their own room. And we're going to take you to see one. Uh, I'm standing outside in this room. Inside is Joshua Eastman's radio. Now, all of you, you know, fans of conspiracy theories and urban legends and and you know creepy stories, you're probably scratching your head right now because you've not heard of Joshua Eastman's radio, and it's a really creepy story. But it's the Illuminati did a good job keeping the lid on. So, for many of you, this is going to be the first time you've heard the story. Okay, so I'm standing outside. It looks like just a, a regular door here. Uh, as much as the high-tech uh, Star Trek science fiction doors are in this uh, complex. So let's uh, go inside. Okay, so let me do my best to kind of describe what's going on here. Uh, this is a room it's well maybe 20 feet by 20 feet maybe 10 feet tall uh and on the walls there's all this sort of americana nostalgia there's things from uh 1938 uh there's some black and white photographs of 
of uh, if you look here, it's a city. It's a black and white city, uh, obviously from the 30s. But if you look at the handwriting on the bottom, the right-hand side, uh, it says this is uh, Scranton, circa 1938. Uh, there's a, a china cabinet here uh, with some cups. Uh, there's uh, looks like some toys. It just uh, there's a, an old Browning box camera. Just uh, things you would have collected if you were lived in 1938. Um, there's an American flag on the wall. Uh, there's a picture of a, a man who uh, you might or might not recognize. This is a young Orson Welles from that period of time. Um, my understanding, he actually was a, a member of the Illuminati during that time. But uh, the story of why he's there, the story will come a little bit more. Uh, I think I said it that there's a there's an American flag here, and they kind of made like a sort of a a window with curtains at the time. I mean, it's not really a window. You look at it, it's just a, it's a picture of you know what uh, what uh, you know a city would have looked like back in the 30s. Now all this stuff is just lined up against the wall or hanging on the wall. In the middle of this room, there are two pillars. On the first shorter one, there lies a leather-bound folder. And this is the case notes from the Illuminati during the time. Uh, and I've read it. I've, this is the first time I've been down here alone. I mean, I'm not alone because I've got my recording equipment and you're with me, but you know, first time I'm alone. Uh, several of the nerds and I got the hair. This is the first time I've been here alone. I want to kind of share this story because uh, I read the the case notes and it's just a fascinating, and, and I'm assuming it's true. I mean, why would the Illuminati lie if they were hiding it? But uh, so this is the case notes. It's uh, made out of wood. It's bell shaped. There there's three knobs in a triangle, one and then two below it, and then the speakers are sort of wicker and there's like cut in sort of. I don't know kind of these designs. I don't know if they're leaves or whatever. But, you know, this is what I imagine, you know, the 1930s radio looked like. You know, this is what, you know, I imagine the family would all, you know, sit around and they'd listen to, you know, the adventures of Spider-Man. Or not Spider-Man, adventures of Superman or, uh, you know, the Lone Ranger or the Green Hornet, you know, or fireside chats of, of FDR after Pearl Harbor, you know, listen to Benny Goodman. Nothing here makes it look sinister, makes it look like it's anything but what it looks like. Uh, the Illuminati notes, they tell a different story. So according to the case file, on the surface, Joshua Eastman seemed to be this normal, regular guy lived in Scranton, Pennsylvania, did what most low-educated people did at that time if they wanted to get ahead. He worked in a steel mill. He, the notes say he was very repressed, that he had kept things deeply inside him. And it's sort of interesting how, after the fact, Illuminati psychologists and covert ops went in and they sort of built this psychological sort of 
spiritual profile of the guy. So he grew up in the Depression. You know, most of his life, he lived in the Depression. And, you know, his family was poor before. So he had to survive. And when he got married and, and had three kids, two boys and a girl, it was even more pressure on him to to be the breadwinner, to survive in this depression. And of course, I'm talking about the Great Depression, the financial depression. But with hindsight, these Illuminati investigators think, well, you know, this guy's not only is he depressed, he's repressed. He is trying to be this perfect father, this perfect worker, this, you know, perfect human being in these terrible times. But besides trying to, you know, be like a, a Norman Rockwell family, he's repressing something else. Joshua Eastman was a latent psychic. That means that he had psychic powers. And the Illuminati thinks that, in hindsight, that he had these great potential psychic powers. They just found out about him too late. And one of the ways that would manifest is that when he had dreams, he would have psychic messages from other people when he was asleep. And so he was asleep as a kid, and the neighbor was, you know, selling alcohol during the prohibition, and he would discover it because of his psychic dreams. Now, he tells his mom this, and his mom is this really religious person, so much that it is oppressive. And so she she puts basically says it's of the devil and the reason that you're having these these evil devil dreams it's because of the science fiction books you read. So he begins to associate science fiction with the devil at an early age because of his psychic power. Oh, okay, hey, crap, that, that, that was weird. Okay, I don't know if you heard that, but but the, the radio turned itself on. And now, that's not the weirdest part. The weirdest part, it's not plugged in. So uh, I don't know where it's running on energy, but um, it kind of makes sense if I tell you more of the story. So, so Joshua Eastman is basically this repressed psychic who believes that aliens are really devils and that they want his soul. And it gets worse because his children start having psychic dreams. Okay, I I don't know if you were able to hear that over the recording equipment. Uh, There was music. I I think you guys are kind of getting why the Illuminati hid this this radio away. Because remember, it's not plugged in. Um, Okay, back to the story. Um, Okay, so yeah. So uh, Eastman's kids start having the psychic dreams. Now, he's just doing the best he can. So he starts repressing them, telling them to stop it, hold it off, make sure they don't have anything science fiction in their life. He, um... You know, he's just doing what his mom did to him. It's the only way he knows. Well, it is 1938, and um, it's the day before Halloween.
Halloween. And again, his parents, you know, Halloween is the devil's day. And I think you might know where this is going. So the, the Eastmans, they sit down and they have a, a nice dinner. And then they go to, you know, listen to the radio. And what is playing but Orson Welles' classic, The War of the Worlds? Now, if you don't know the story, um, it was a radio show, but a lot of people, and they debate whether a lot of people or just a few people, tuned in late, and they didn't realize it was part of a radio show. They thought this was a real alien invasion. And, uh... The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene. Okay, uh, okay, you, you, you've got to have heard, heard that. Um, I, I think you kind of know where this is going. So, so Joshua Eastman is with his family. He is listening to this radio show where he thinks that the world is being invaded. Everyone thinks it's Martians, but because of his experience, he thinks that it is demons or devils. So he believes that not only are these demons and devils out to get his soul, but his wife and children. So he does the one thing that, and, and this is this, the tragic part of the story, he does the one thing that just seems to be the only logical response. He has to, he has to kill his family before the devils and the demons get them. Thank for your word picture of a strange scene before my eyes, but something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Uh, so uh, yeah, he, he pulls out a revolver and he, he, he shoots his family and commits suicide. And of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. There you see the problem. I mean, besides the five human beings died because they didn't understand what was going on. According to the Illuminati, Eastman was such a powerful psychic and didn't control it that he projected his psychic energy into what he was listening to, the, the, the device, the radio. And so it has these echoes, these ghosts. So it will pick up sometimes what the family, and just start playing, what the family was listening to when they die. And, and, and it's, it's a tragic, it's a, it's a tragic story but it's also just interesting that, you know, the psychic and, and oh, well, well, that's weird. It just, it got cold. I mean, it dropped from like 75 degrees in here to like 50. It's, 
just it, it's cold. Okay, um, so um, uh, DB, you'll need to edit that. Um, okay, um, so like I was saying, it, it it's tragic that this this family lost their lives, but oh, okay, it, it, it's doing it again. Hey, uh, I'm I'm gonna head back up to the the Dave Cave and to to finish this. Okay, I, I see there's like three, there's like three small skeletons in front of me. Uh, I, I mean, they seem to be sitting down. Uh, I'm going to move towards the door. Uh, they don't, uh, they don't seem to see me and, and I can see through them. Uh, okay, there's, there's a large, larger skeleton It has appeared and, and, and it's, it's coming up behind the other ones and... It, it, it's pulling pulling out a gun and good crap okay, oh. it, it shot him it, it just just shot him and, and the, the skeletons they went limp and there, there there's another skeleton it just it just walked into the it just appeared I don't it it, it, it just it just shot the other skeleton and and now it's looking right at me I mean if it had eyes it'd be looking at me. And it, 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 it's pointing the gun towards me. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna head towards the door, and he, he, he just, he, he just, he put the, the gun to his head, and, and he just shot. He just, oh god, okay, okay. Hey, I'm, wow. So it's more than, it's more than just well, the radio show that's trapped in this radio. It's like, it's like the Eastmans are trapped here. Like he he consigned his family to this hell. He, he thought he was trying to escape them or help them escape from. Um, listen, I I'm 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 getting out. Uh, um, okay, I, I, I need to... the Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night. So we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. Wow, could a radio capture the last moments of a family's life? Like some kind of psychic recorder destined to play their last moments over and over again? Was it the vision of the ill-fated family, some kind of psychic imprint, or was it... I don't know, what Dave saw the actual ghosts of the family killed in 38 by a, a father who thought he was saving the family, or, uh... Was Orson Welles himself some kind of, uh... Was it, was it all some kind of prank? Was it, did any of it actually happen? Was it real? I don't know. But I know one thing. If Orson Welles is out there, he's, uh, out haunting either, uh, Peter Bogdanovich's, uh, I don't know, uh, Laurel Canyon Mansion, or, uh, He's a uh, haunting the vineyards of Paul Masson. Remember to like, subscribe, tell your friends about us. 
anywhere. Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, we are a part of Black Clock Audio Tales Book Club, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Articulate Warbling with Zach and Laura. Dave's corner of the podcast is like what I like to call the, the sections that he does for Black Clock Audio Tales. But yeah, no, all kinds of stuff. If you want to listen to books, if you want to hear spooky stories about Cthulhu Mythos stuff, if you want to listen to two uh, British people in their like early 20s talk about movies they're watching and what's going on around them. Uh, also, yeah, definitely check out Articulate Warbling. Uh, they've got a Facebook page and they're doing live stuff all the time. And yeah, no, it's really good. And check it out. All right. Speaking of out, I'm out. Dave's out. Out of program. Uh, wait for episode seven. Coming shortly. <laughs>